I have here an extract of the executive summary of the ICSA child abuse inquiry into care in Lambeth Council. I've got a couple of quotes I'd like to read. It is hard to comprehend the cruelty and sexual abuse inflicted on children in the care of Lambeth Council over many years by staff, by foster carers and their families and by volunteers in residential settings. With one or two exceptions, a succession of elected members and senior professionals ought to, be, ought to have been held accountable for allowing this to happen, either by their active commission or by complicit omis, omission. Lambeth Council was only able to identify one senior council employee over the course of 40 years who was disciplined for their part in this catalogue of sexual abuse. By June 2020, Lambeth Council was aware of 705 former residents of three children's homes in this investigation, Shirley Oaks, South Vale and Angel Road, who, um, who have made complaints of sexual abuse. The biggest of these homes, Shirley Oaks, was the subject of allegations against 177 members of staff or individuals connected with the home, involving at least 529 former residents. It was closed in 1983. The true scale of the sexual abuse against children in Lambeth Council's care will never be known, but is certain to be significantly higher than is formally recorded. Lambeth Council now accepts that children in its care were sexually abused and that it failed them. Their representative at the inquiry gave a full apology on behalf of the Council, acknowledging that Lambeth Council, quote, created and oversaw conditions that were appalling and absolutely shocking and horrendous abuse was perpetrated, end quote. So this inquiry was published only a short time ago and this full apology was given only a short time ago. So this brings us to the question for today's interview which is, which is has anything actually changed? And we have here a whistleblower from Lambeth Council area, uh, Emma Arne, who is going to describe her experience, her very recent an ongoing experience with trying to raise safeguarding concerns and protect children in Lambeth Council. Emma, welcome. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. This story starts with uh, a, a council facility, a, a, a local government run facility uh, that you were able to observe and initially you thought everything was, was okay. Can, can we start there? What, what were uh, your initial, um, initial views of, of, of this institution and of the, the person who ran it? So this is a statutory setting. It's not a, a care home. It's a, it's a different statutory setting within Lambeth. I don't want to describe it in too much detail because I don't want it to be identifiable. But my initial impression was really positive. I was involved with a community-based project and as part of that I um, did a did a occasional volunteering at, at this setting. I was initially very impressed. It was a setting that was very inclusive. There was um, a lot of children at the setting that had additional needs. So children with learning difficulties, physical disabilities, um, English as a second language. Um, there was a really good level of provision for children that had English as a second language. Many of the children were from refugee and asylum seeking backgrounds. It was a really diverse setting and the setting seemed to be really innovative in terms of um, meeting children's needs, children that might struggle to um, feel included in other settings. Um, it, it was very impressive. The, the leader of the setting, he seemed very dedicated to his job. He was someone that came across um, down to earth, um, um, hard working and had a really good, seemed to have a good rapport with the community that he served. So initially there was, there was no concern in relation to the setting. After a little while, you started to see things that set some alarm bells ringing. Um, uh, now obviously you, your background is in, you, you've been dealing with 
social work and um, and and child protection matters and safeguarding. So you you you're bringing, as I understand, a considerable degree of professional expertise to this as well. Um, uh, so what um, uh, what was what gave rise to your first concerns? Yes, yeah, so, so just to clarify, I've got a background in social work. I'm a qualified social worker. I've predominantly worked in the voluntary se- sector. Um, at the time, I was involved with research. But in addition to the research I was doing, I also um, did a few hours volunteering each week just to kind of keep that connection with the community. So it was quite an informal role that I had in that setting. But previously, I'd worked in roles which had a high level of safeguarding responsibility, where I was involved with research around uh, reaching marginalised groups, around um, complex trauma, supporting people with complex trauma and around um, complex safeguarding issues. So um, I had a really good level of experience. Initially, there were just a few concerns around boundaries. The boundaries at the setting um, weren't as strong as they should be. And I noticed that where the, the leader of that setting had a, a really good rapport with that community, boundaries seemed to be blurred. And there was one particular occasion when a boy at that setting was particularly distressed. Uh, I reached out to the leader of the setting as he was the safeguarding lead, but I was really surprised by his response. His response to me raising safeguarding concerns was, was quite intimidating. And that really kind of got me thinking, you know, what, what is actually going on here? And um, and actually that, that intimidating response, rather than kind of scaring me away, it made me kind of look a bit closer at what's going on. And you know, with time, there was a dynamic I noticed, like um, grooming, gaslighting behaviours from the lead in that setting. Um, although, like I said previously, at face value, there was a lot of positives going on. Actually, there was this whole different dynamic where where things were quite concerning, and I was a bit, I was concerned. Can I just uh, push you a little more on on in- intimidating? Are, are, are we talking your know, grumpy and shouting, or are we talking something more personally threatening? We- what was the nature of the intimidation? Yeah, it was quite personally threatening. So like literally an hour after emailing him, I bumped into him and it was a, a location quite close to where I lived, somewhere that he wouldn't typically t- would have a reason to go. It was kind of out of the way of the major transport links that were close to the setting. So it was odd to see him there. He made comments about where I lived and what the security's like. Is it going to be easy for someone to break in there? And it seemed such an odd remark for him to make, given the nature of his role. Um, It was not what I expected. Um, But but yeah, it was it was an odd it was an odd dynamic. He was making um, jokes about people breaking into my house, um, jokes about the fact it's easy for him to get from the setting to where I lived. It it was odd and and intimidating. Okay, so that that obviously. You know, highlighted further concerns. Um, could you take us through the point? Uh, what happened between then and the point where you first made contact uh, with with someone else and someone in authority, someone to to whom you were you were taking these concerns? Do you know, in, in the in the build up to the point where you felt you had to take action? Uh, was there anything else happening or, or was that sufficient that you felt you had to raise raise your concerns with, with, with the authorities? In the months that followed, there were some other like, low-level concerns that came about. Um, I was becoming more and more aware of quite an unhealthy dynamic between the leader of the setting and some of the families. And again, a lot of the families were quite vulnerable. Um, I noticed him being quite intimidating with, with some of them. So if it was quite a minor issue, his response was often disproportionate. So there was um, an increased pattern of intimidating behaviour towards me, which concerned me. It included low-level intimidation, things like glaring at me across the room at an event, at the setting, to things like um, there was a, a series of events where I had my bike vandalised and my bike stolen. I couldn't prove who did this, but he'd often make remarks about, oh, what's been happening to your bike? You know, um, he seemed to know about what was happening. And, um, and, and yeah, at times when my bike was vandalised, it was actually quite quite dangerous. You know, if I hadn't have noticed that had happened and I'd set off and cycled on it, you know, it could have been a, a really serious accident. 
So there was a pattern of um, vandalism. There was also vandalism of, of my property, which was concerning. And there was also a witness who, because I said to my neighbours, have you seen anyone that you don't recognise? That's because I live on the houseboat and it was a community where everyone knew each other. And alarmingly, the person they described seeing that near my boat that they hadn't re- recognised would actually match the description of a perpetrator. The sort of intimidated uh, style and tactics with other parents, um, was that with men and women or was it very, did, it, did it target women predominantly or only? Uh, how, how did that split? Was, he, was, was the perpetrator, did he behave differently when, when he was with an adult male uh, as, a, as opposed to perhaps a more a vulnerable adult female from a marginalised position, you know, did you notice a pattern there? Yes, definitely. It was a setting which was predominantly accessed, um, it was predominantly mums that would drop off their children there. And undoubtedly that dynamic was seen with women. I didn't see, I didn't see that dynamic with men. It was pretty much always with women and also female staff. Uh, What I noticed about the setting is that there was almost um, like a safeguarding vacuum because the, the staff there tended to be very young, newly qualified, like young, newly qualified female staff. And he used that quite intimidating dynamic with them at times. So it's, you know, it's a, a, a man in a position of authority. Um, then um, female caregivers that have often additional vulnerabilities um, due to their circumstances. And then a staff team where there's additional vulnerabilities too. You got to a point, you felt there was enough that you had to raise this with the authority. Something's not right. I have concerns. The interactions don't seem right. When there was a safeguarding concern, I raised it. I had this very creepy discussion about my personal safety and my property. And something doesn't seem right. I feel I should bring this forward. How, how was that received by Lambeth Council? Um, Lambeth Council made it clear they weren't interested. They said, if you're concerned about families in this setting, tell us the names of these families, we will investigate the families. But they made it clear they weren't interested in doing any investigation in relation to the setting. I made reference to the IICSA report and saying, surely this would be a priority at Lambeth at this time. I was told that they're not making a, a record of this conversation. The only time they would act is if the police get involved and the police ask them to hold a Lado meeting. That's astonishing. So this was after the EXA report. You go along with the safeguarding concern and they refuse to make a they, they refuse to investigate and they refuse to make a record of you even raising the issue. Is that correct? Yes, I was really shocked by the response. I mean, the the initial Lambeth report did focus on children in care. So you could argue because it's not um, focused on those particular settings, that there are different um, implications in terms of the recommendations from that report are very much children in care focused. However, having said that, there's a lot of research around contextual safeguarding and the importance of safeguarding children from extra familiar harm. And and also any any kind of statutory setting has very strict safeguarding guidelines. And as this setting is is run by Lambeth Local Authority, someone should have been interested in this. There should have been some curiosity as to why or where these safeguarding concerns being raised. You know, know, from that conversation, they could it would have been quite apparent that I've got that social work background, I've got that knowledge of safeguarding. You know, it's not like I'm someone phoning up, you know, out of the blue um, with quite a generalised concern. I was evidencing, um, you know, patterns of behaviours you'd associate with abuse, that grooming, that gaslighting, children showing symptoms of distress. And and some of the references children at that setting made were quite unusual. And it was... Later on, when I got a disclosure that, that I was able to piece together what you know, some of these unusual references children made and, and how that fitted with a bigger picture and the pattern of abuse that was occurring. I personally I find this astonishing because I mean I, I, I'm, I don't have any of the safeguarding training you do. I, my profession is engineering. It's, it, it's not dealing with children in any way. But it, it seems to me that the, I can't imagine a situation in which not recording the conversation would be appropriate. I, I just can't see what, what world would that be acceptable. Anyway, um, 
moving on, you, you said you said you mentioned the disclosure there. So the the initial contact got got nowhere. Uh, but then things things got very much more serious. Uh, you, you, you had a disclosure. There was much more detail of of the nature of the abuse. Could you take us through uh, that aspect of the story, please? So there was a family that attended the setting, and I knew that family personally. And the, the one of the family members was concerned about a child, and I, I spoke to the child. And at the time, um, I anticipated the conversation was maybe around something about bullying. The child had often struggled at school, and uh, where he has autism and a level of learning disability, I was anticipating the conversation would be something around the lines of like peer group issues struggling in that sense because I know that those are things he'd struggled with previously what I was then surprised to hear is that when he spoke about what was upsetting him he made reference to the setting and the setting lead and he disclosed the fact that the setting lead had taken photos of him so he said that he took photos of him um, when he was in the bathrooms at that setting and um, you know this was deeply concerning um particularly as in addition to that description, he described you know, that pattern of grooming, that pattern of threat, threatening behaviour towards him. He'd been threatened um, quite severely, like, don't tell anyone about this. Um, so, so obviously that where I'd had those underlying concerns, this, this like, really shocking disclosure that I wasn't anticipating, this, this brought my concerns to a whole different level and I knew that I had to go to the police immediately. Right, okay, so that's a quite clear cut. Photographing a child uh, in an entirely inappropriate way, in an inappropriate place, and threats to the child to keep this whole thing secret. Yes, absolutely, no doubt about that. You went to the police, and given the exit report, given all of the, the focus on child protection, one would expect the police would have taken this very seriously and acted immediately, did they? It was interesting because um, the initial phone conversation I had with the police, they said to come as soon as possible. Uh, when we arrived at the police station, there was maybe less enthusiasm to um, act on this. We were sat for a very long time in the waiting room of the police station. You, um, the child was, to, uh, was sat on the edge of a, a windowsill while we were waiting. I said, you know, is there somewhere more appropriate we can go? Um, the, the desk staff at the police station were like, well, are you sure he was taking photos of him? Um, you know, he could have just been having his phone out in the bathroom. I said, this isn't a discussion I'm going to have over a desk. And, um, you know, we need to properly speak to someone about this. We need to have the chance for the child to make a disclosure. Eventually, we were seen by um, a staff from the Kate team. And the response was very good. Um, they, they had a really good rapport with the child. It was difficult because where I described the fact the child had communication difficulties due to um, autism and learning difficulties, they weren't really, um, there wasn't as, as much understanding as I'd hoped in terms of what that would mean in terms of the support he would need to make a disclosure. Um, and so when they uh, attempted to speak to him on his own, um, the, they were asking him questions like, okay, tell us about the setting. And he described the setting, you know, he would take the, the um, questions very literally. So unfortunately, there was, um, that, that discussion was quite limited. But they said, um, based on the information that I'd given, they'd look to make an arrest over the next 48 hours. That was presented as something quite definite. Um, you know, as we we're walking through the police station, the child said, is that the car you're going to use to arrest him? They said, no, it's not going to be a small car. It's going to be one of the bigger, bigger vans. So that, that was quite a definite message. Um, but then, um, you know, the days went by, nothing happened. We didn't hear anything. And it was, uh, like around two weeks later that we were told that no further action was being taken. So there was a very big contrast in what was said and then what eventually happened. The email I received was quite odd. It said, as we're not taking any action, you're not to discuss this with anyone, which, which was quite odd because I, I, I anticipated, well, if there's no issue here and you're not taking action, well, why can't I discuss this with anyone? And it was strange as well. At a later stage where I saw the, the case notes for, for the report that was made, it actually um, became apparent that it was only 42 minutes after we'd reported initially that a decision was made that no crime had been committed. 
So in person, we've been told we're going to look to make an arrest. But behind the scenes, very early on, like we were talking to police from between 5pm to 730 But at 5.42, it had been decided that they were going to take no further action and no crime had been committed. Wow. So after a full thorough investigation lasting 42 minutes, there was insufficient credible admissible evidence and no action was to be taken. That's astonishing, but we've seen it before. Um, And what did give you any justification for the keep? Keep quiet. Don't talk to anyone about this. Was there any was there any lawful justification as to why your freedom of speech was being infringed? They didn't give me any justification. I think they anticipated that as that email had come from a relatively senior officer, that that I would assume that it was law. But um, you know, I knew you had a good understanding of the law. I'd worked in roles where I'd worked quite closely with the police in the past, so I knew that what what was being said to me wasn't really in keeping with the law. So, you've reported a serious offence um, and the police have done nothing. Uh, it, what happened, I mean, well, essentially, what happened next? What did you then do? So, I was I was really concerned about the child because the child was really upset that nothing was, was happening. And I assured them that, you know, I'm going to follow this up. I'm going to um, look into the appeal process. Like, um, there's, there's different things we can do. We can write a complaint. We, you can apply for victim's right to review. And um, I explained you know, there's, there's different support out there that you can access as well. Um, so, while this was going on, I... Um, I, I looked. I looked into the support that was available. Um, the, the child's behaviour really deteriorated in this time. Um, the family described that, um, yeah, he was um, he was using increasingly sexualised language. His behaviour was more erratic. It, you know, he was generally speaking, he was a, a really well-behaved child. There was no behavioural issues, although he had um, additional um, communication needs. You know, day-to-day life, he was very settled on the whole. But his um, yeah his behaviour changed, and um, and so I, I went to see him and I, I asked him like how's everything going, and um, and he said he was scared about the perpetrator, and I said you know you don't have to be scared of him anymore, and um, it was interesting because after you know you could tell that like, there there was by reaction on his face when I said you don't have to be scared of him anymore. Something in him, him shifted, and um, in the days that followed, he was he was talking about the setting more and more. And then um, at a later stage, I saw him again, and that's when he he said to me he didn't he didn't just take photos. And then from that initial sentence, so much came out about this horrific pattern of abuse that the child had endured. Um, you know. It's, it's um, you know, you can't even, and there's no doubt in my mind that this abuse um, happened, and it's true. Like, you could tell the way his, his body almost, it's almost like he went floppy as he, he talked about it. You know, it was, um, yeah, I know it's real. And the way he described it, like, you know that he's seen this in front of him because he didn't necessarily know what, or what some of the things were or what, like how to describe them, but actually the way he described it in quite a simplistic form, it's like, you know, you know this has happened. It's not like he has that kind of awareness of like sexualized issues and was able to describe it in, in say, a a more mature form. He was describing um, um, the abuse he he had experienced um, in a way that I'd say can only identify that that this, this child really had experienced it. Okay, so this this was you know hugely significant and and an immediate I mean an immediate safeguarding concern. This this required immediate action from the council and from the police, and obviously from you having dis, having having received this information. Uh, we'll start with you. What did you do? I reassured them that it's it's not their fault because they had um, the, the abuser had given them the sense that what had happened to them was their fault and they'd done something wrong. I said you haven't done anything wrong. Um, he's the one that's wrong. You know what he's done to you is is 
horrifically wrong and I, I reassured them that you're safe because he was particularly worried about the threats that are being made um, the abuse disclosure included the fact that he'd actually been threatened with, with weapons he described a gun being held to his head he described a knife being held in front of him really horrific abuse and the fact that this has happened in a statutory setting by someone in such a position of trust it makes it all the more like, hor- horrific that this could, could even happen. So I, I reassured the child and I said, well, we have to go to the police. This is this is really serious. We need to um, ensure that, every, you know, children are setting a safeguarded and you can get support. And and this this is this is what, what needs to happen. We have to go to the police. So we um, we arranged to go to the police station. And uh, again, we were told to go as soon as possible. Again, there was a similar dynamic, but when we arrived, they were quite reluctant to talk to us. We were sat there waiting for ages. They said, oh, someone's already been down. You missed them. I was like, okay, well, send someone else down. You know, you've got you've got more than one person in your CAPE team. Send someone down. So we went through to speak to officers, and it was appalling. This, this was a nine-year-old child, and the way they treated him was as if he was a suspect. He was taken to his interview room. He was distressed. The officer shouted at him. He said to me, you've got to make him talk. I said, he's a vulnerable child that's been through horrific trauma. You've got to put support in place. I'm not going to make him talk. Um, so uh, I um, you know, I said to them, you know, you You've got, there's got to be some support provision there. I'd, I'd previously supported vulnerable victims um, to um, engage with police, so I knew the process. I said, you know, you need to clarify the details of, of the crime, and then you need to arrange for an ABE interview with an intermediary. You need to sign posts of support. You need to put safeguards in place at the setting. You know, this is this is urgent. This is something that needs to be addressed. Um, and you know, you'd anticipate that this isn't an uncommon issue, particularly within a child safeguarding team. Children will often be distressed at the prospect of talking to police. Um, you know, they've, there's always an imbalance of power in the context of abuse. So then having to go and speak to someone in a position of power is, is daunting. And also, as with this case, you know, children are often threatened about what will happen if you speak to someone, particularly what, if you, what happens if you speak to police. So I would have anticipated that the police would have been well prepared to support a vulnerable child. And, and also, um, it's, it's well known, sadly, that um, children with additional needs, particularly communication needs, are particularly vulnerable to abuse. Um, there's a high prevalence of abusers targeting children that will struggle to speak up. And, and also, sadly, there is um, sometimes perception that children with additional needs aren't such credible witnesses. So in the notes, it said a child with learning difficulties has disclosed he's been abused and she has taken this as fact. And so, you know, it's very clear from reading that statement that's in the police notes that the police had a view that because there's a level of learning difficulties, it might not be a true account. But but in reality, you know, this child was a capable witness. And you know, guidelines um, within policing say that, you know, we shouldn't be focusing on um, credibility, but instead capability. And if, if support provisions have been put in place, and in addition to that, that reassurance, you know, this child was so scared of speaking to police, and understandably so. But this, this didn't happen. And I think as well, it's really important to identify the, the, um, the, the, the demographics um, of the setting and uh, the demographic characteristics of the child. So the setting where the abuse took place, um, the majority of um, children at the setting were um, black, Hispanic, South Asian. Um, these uh, primary school age children Many of the children um, face um, multiple social disadvantage. It's a community with high levels of poverty, a community where um, many, many families are asylum seeking or refugees or have insecure immigration status. So um, so without being too, um, without identifying the child too, too clearly, you know, this is a child from an ethnic minority background a nine-year-old child and the, the Metropolitan Police, for, for whatever reason, felt they weren't able to empathise with him and able to put basic support measures in place. 
And this, and, and we must remember, this is recent. I mean, what, what year are we talking about here? So it's 2022. So in the media at the time, there's, there's been a lot about racism in the Metropolitan yeah. Police, about young black boys being disproportionately targeted. This is such a young, vulnerable child. And sadly, I do feel racism really impacted the way he was treated. He was dehumanised. He wasn't seen as a child victim of a serious crime. Again, that dynamic was more that he was a suspect rather than a victim. And this, I mean, 2022, it's not as if there haven't been sufficient warnings for the police to address this. We're not talking about a case from the 1970s where um, consideration of um, the, 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 the effect of learning disabilities was not handled as well, where uh, interviewing victims of rape wasn't handled as well. It was it was all a bit austere and standard and there was there wasn't enough thought given to the particulars of the of the position that the victim is in to try and provide an acceptable environment and an environment that was conducive to getting the information accurately and fully. But all of these lessons have been learned multiple times. Um, 2022, after the exit report. It's astonishing. So, they didn't do a good job with the interview. Um, and how did, how did they then respond? Did they take action at all? So, um, we when I said to them, you need to put support in place, I was informed that they would go to speak to the senior officer and get advice as to how to proceed. So, we're waiting for around two hours and what was what was interesting is while we were waiting, the child did actually open up to a uniformed police officer that was with us. She built a good rapport with him. And um, but it was interesting as he was talking to her, although he didn't describe the abuse, he described in detail some of the threats that were made, really horrific threats of violence, um, both towards the child and their family. But also he, there was references made to me. Um, the perpetrator seemed to be aware that I... I had um, an idea of, um, not the full extent, but I think you know, had an idea that I had safeguarding concerns about the setting. One of the most um, telling things that was said is um, after waiting for about two hours, I put my purse on the table. I said, let's go and get some food. We've been waiting for ages. The child said to me, check your purse, check your bank cards are still there. The perpetrator said that he would take everything from you if you reported him to the police. So where the child has got learning difficulties, he took that very literally, where the perpetrator said he'd take everything from me. He took that literally and said, you know, check your bank cards are there. But that's such a, such a sinister threat to make, to say I'm going to take everything from her. And sadly, it became quite um, an accurate threat because in the months that followed that disclosure, I did I did lose almost everything, really. I lost so much. I had to... I had to leave London. I had to rebuild my life um, because after that disclosure, there was um, increased um, acts of intimidation towards myself, increased acts of harassment, um, it, and that included at my home address. So some of it was in the streets, people shouting abuse at me. Some of it was at my home address, um, getting knocked on the door, um, abuse shouted. I was getting harassment calls. I had my email hacked into um, so I then had to leave London, I leave my job, um, my child had to leave their school. We we had to start again, really, um, because um, sadly, um, you know, I reported this to the police and, and again, as with all other aspects of this case, no, nothing happened. The police are ignoring... Essentially, we're talking about a, a rape allegation from a child. Multiple rape. Are we talking about multiple rape allegations from a child? Um, reports of a child of serious threats, threats against you, intimidation against you, acts of vandalism, and other um, uh, threatening behaviour towards you. And the Metropolitan Police do nothing. They can't. They 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 don't see any part of this as a pattern that suggests that you might be that you might be at risk that the child is at risk or the perpetrator is a risk to others 
they they don't act on any of it. Is that is that a summary of their position? Yes, that's correct. So um, what happened after um, the child described the threats that were made, an officer came back and said, we're not taking this further. And that, yeah, that's shocking. I was like, well, you, you can't not take this further. This is such a serious um, safeguarding concern. You know, safeguards need to be held in place. Um, and, you know, um, there needs to be a strategy meeting in relation to the perpetrator. He has really extensive access to vulnerable children. There needs to be signposting for support for this child. There, you know, there's very, I was very well aware of what needed to happen. And sadly, none of that was happening. And as, as the days went by and that pattern of intimidation, harassment in relation to myself became more pronounced, I spoke to the police and um, police attended. I said, are you going to take a statement? I said, no, we're just, um, we're just doing a welfare check. I said, but what about the threats of violence that have been made towards me? Um, the advice I was given was to keep looking over my shoulder when I'm out and about. So but, you know, that's um, not not very robust um, um, advice. So, so um, you know, to make it clear, I was um, I had to uh, I'd been living on a houseboat on the River Thames initially. Um, around December time, that that property was vandalised. The boat was taken on water. I had to I had to leave the property quite quickly. I um, then moved into a different property um, towards the Bromley area. It was you know, what, what I was able to find at short notice. Um, and then I was getting harassment there. So it's two two separate properties I've left, one due to vandalism, one due to recurrent harassment. Um, as, as that pattern of harassment um, escalated, um, I spoke to friends in the police. I had friends in um, different police forces. Uh, I said to them, what, what, what should we do? And they, they said, get out of London. You know, they said that, um, you know, although they met, Met Police have been in the media quite a lot at this time. You know, this is March 2022. Um, Chrissy Dick had just uh, she just stepped down. So, you know, we met her in the, in, in the media a lot for all the wrong reasons. But they said, you know, even in this context where the Met Police have quite a questionable reputation, the fact that they're ignoring this recurrent harassment and intimidation of yourself, you know, this is unprecedented. You need to get out of London, get to a place of safety, and then speak to police force there when you arrive. People might find this difficult to believe. Um, maybe not the UK column audience, but a lot of people might find this difficult to believe. I would point out at this juncture that every case, every case I've been really closely involved with, where at the heart of it is being abuse of a child, um, tends to be a child with some sort of learning, learning impairment, tends to be a child who might not make it, perceived as not making a good witness. Um, in every case, the family have ended up running from the abuse to try and to put enough physical distance between them and the abuse in, in order to be safe. It, this is this is sadly not an unusual story. Um, now, uh, one aspect of this that I'd like to get into now is is part of the mechanism. How was it? that the Met Police were consistently letting you down, right? I mean, you talked about the WPC who, who, who developed a rapport with the, with the child as they were sitting in the police station. There's obviously some people there with some good interpersonal skills and a decent caring heart. How was it that whenever you made your report it of, of intimidation or, uh, or, or, or or uh, of the abuse itself, it consistently didn't go anywhere. You did eventually get an inkling as to, or an indication as to why or what the mechanism was that was leading your every statement to be ignored by the Met. Yeah, I think that's some really good points that you made. And just follow on with, from what you said um, um, just earlier is that um, I was very well aware that disclosures of abuse sadly often weren't taken seriously. Having worked in social work, I had seen too many cases where, um, particularly in a domestic context, that a, a disclosure of abuse was made and not taken seriously. And the, the assumptions that were often made were, oh, this is some kind of inter-family conflict, and there were often quite misogynistic prejudices and the view that, oh, a, a woman's made this up because she's 
fallen out with the, the perpetrator. That would be that kind of um, the kind of assumption that's made. And sadly, it's these kind of attitudes are not uncommon in social work. And that goes right away through to family court. It's not uncommon that children are disbelieved. And, and also it, what ties in with that is when female caregivers um, come forward with disclosures of abuse, they are often not believed because of that, that general prejudice that women lie, women are vindictive, women make things up. So I was well aware of that pattern. But what shocked me is that this is in a statutory setting. I'm someone with a social work background, raising safeguarding concerns in the statutory setting. There's no interpersonal connection with me and the perpetrator. It's something that police ask me, like, have you ever been in a relationship with a perpetrator? Have you fallen out with him? Is there, you know, what's your reason? Um, what's your reason for uh, making these disclosures? Even when I described that pattern of um, gaslighting behaviour, you know, they said to me, oh, are you annoyed he's giving mixed messages? I was like, no, that's not how gaslighting should be perceived. Um, so so that this is really crucial that there's no motivation for a, a false disclosure. And I had evidence, really extensive indicators of abuse. The child had both described and um, ex exhibited indicators of abuse it still wasn't believed. And this didn't make sense. And no one was giving me an answer. I, I even phoned up the police in the week that followed. And I said to them, I'm really concerned that um, you're, not, you're not taking this seriously. Amongst the threats the child had described, the child had stated that the perpetrator had said that he has contacts in the Met Police and that if I made a disclosure, he would present false information about me. I said this to um, the police call handler. They, they said, oh, no, we've not got anything here from him. It was a month later that a, a social worker showed up on my parents' doorstep stating that they were worried about my child because of um, information that had been passed to them from the police stating that I had a history of severe mental illness, a history of being sectioned, a history of delusions and fabrication. Finally, it made sense why I wasn't being taken seriously but then that gives gives into the bigger questions. How did this false information end up in my police files? You know, it's not like a spelling mistake. It's not like a mistake that can be explained away. Someone's gone through trouble of going into police records, police records that are nation, nationally held, writing false information there. And then that false information has been spread with other organisations. But, but crucially, um, it seems that the reason that both the initial disclosure and the subsequent disclosure were closed down so quickly was due to this false information and this automatic assumption that, okay, this is um, the, the woman that's attending with this child is, um, she must be delusional, she, this must be fabricated. Um, I mean, that brings an issue in itself because even if someone did have a history of mental illness, um, if they were well at the time and they were proven to be a capable witness, there's no reason not to believe disclosure. And if the police had assumed that this was a symptom of severe mental illness, then they should have acted at the time. It's not uncommon for police to liaise quite closely with mental health services to put referrals in place. So it's not clear why that didn't why, why didn't that happen if police thought this was a symptom of, of uh, mental illness and delusion? Why didn't they act sooner? How does false information occur on, to be on my records? Um, but yeah, going forward, I would have anticipated at that point when it was identified my records being falsified that, that the pattern would change, that there would be a 180-degree shift and that the police would start taking things seriously. You make a, a huge number of very important points. I just want to just, um, reflect on a few of them. First, an excellent point that you made is that sexualized behavior in young children is always a sign of abuse because young children just do not behave like that unless they're experiencing something they should not be experiencing. The fact that that was ignored, that alone, I think it's inexcusable. Um, the... There is a pattern here, because I've, I've, I've worked with, with men and women and couples who are under this sort of um, attack by the authorities to cover up abuse. And there's a pattern to how 
were portrayed. If you're a woman, you're hysterical. If you're a man, you're aggressive and violent. That, and they play to these stereotypes. So if you're male, you will be accused of being violent and threatening. If you're female, you will be accused of being hysterical and incoherent and loopy. That's and it, the number of times we've seen this, the, <laughs> with people that I know are neither of these things, uh, is, is remarkable. It, it keeps coming up. Uh, there was a book written by what actually now a conservative MSP, but formerly a journalist, for many years journalist in Glasgow, um, covering the gang warfare in Glasgow. So you have to be quite robust to, to be on that particular beat. A man called Russell Finlay, he's produced several books. One's called Fitted Up. And this describes the experience of a man in the West End of Glasgow having essentially a long-running um, series of intimidation, including arson attacks and very serious crimes being perpetrated against him by a known individual, and he could never get the police to, to act. And it was very strange because he would go in to report the latest incident, and the police would be very understanding and you know, and attentive, and they'd take full notes and, and they say, come back and see us tomorrow and we'll take this further. And he'd come back. Or, you know, that might be the person who actually called out to the incident. When he went into the police station the next day, they didn't want to know. And it was a strange pattern. And it took him ages to find out why. Years. It took him years to find out why. And it transpired that in his Police Scotland records, um, he was a gangster. Now, he wasn't a gangster. But his Police Scotland record says he was a gangster and he'd been out in, in and out of uh, Barlini prison his entire life and was a thug and dangerous and not to be trusted. And when the police would go back and see his file, they would drop whatever he said completely. And it took years to identify that that was what that was the heart of it. So again, your story, people might find it difficult to believe. It's more common than we would like to imagine. Um, so, you got to the point that you've, you've identified the problem with the files, and you're quite right. Logically, this, this situation now turns around 180 and the police are responsive. Is that what happened? No, it didn't. Uh, it didn't change anything in terms of police investigation. The police had no further contact with either myself or the child's family until a few months later, at the end of May, when they um, identified that no further action was being taken. So from March, when it was um, first reported, to May, there was, there was no contact with the victim or their family. And again, looking at the case notes, it, it's apparent that the case was actually closed one working day after being reported. We were speaking to the police late Friday afternoon, and about 11 o'clock Tuesday morning, the case was closed. Um, so, so the police, the police position didn't change. What was horrifying and something I could have never anticipated is, although it was proven that there was false information on my files, um, social services um, did not stop their investigation of me. I would have thought that given the nature of the harassment and the threats that I had um, received, the serious nature of the safeguarding concerns I disclosed, children's services would be very proactive in terms of advocating for safeguarding in this setting. At this point, I was on the South Coast, so um, I had travelled down to Christchurch, where my family's based, um, to get away from this pattern of harassment. And um, interestingly, I'd previously worked in a role where I had quite close, um, quite a close rapport with BCP Children's Services. So throughout my life, there'd never been any kind of social care involvement, not even early help. No concerns had ever been raised about um, my, my child. There had never been um, any social care involvement. I don't want to give any um, information about my child other than that they're not a young child. You know, they're, it's, if there's um, unrecognised issues in a family, it would tend to be identified in the preschool years or when a, a child first starts school. My child's much older. so this. This is not a case you would anticipate. You know, this isn't someone that slipped through a net. Um, you know, there's good engagement from school. I was able to give records that had never, no concerns have ever been raised. 
And also I'd worked with BCP Children's Services collaboratively. They'd previously been in touch with me actually about running training for their staff. Um, I think it was around um, about a year before this, um, a BCP social worker actually got in touch with me asking for advice um, around supporting a family with no recourse to public funds. Um, I was in London at the time, but I said, you know, I'm, I'm happy to help. Um, and I um, attended a research forum in the BCP area shortly before this had happened. So I'd um, presented on best practice to BCP social workers. So I was known to the local authority, but in a, in a very different context to what you'd anticipate for a very heavy level of social work involvement. Um, you know, I had that uh, quite a strong uh, professional reputation. And you know, I was able to prove to a social worker, you know, I've got no history of mental illness. Um, you know, I've got this, you know, a really strong career um, within the social care field. And, um, you know, to me, it was logical that if it had been evidence that my records had been falsified, there should surely be no further investigation on myself. The response from the social worker was, it doesn't matter, your records have been falsified. You've reported this extreme account of abuse. Um, they said the, the abuse is too extreme to be, be believable. They said that the child didn't say anything to police. The disclosure of abuse just came from me. Again, I provided clarity that the child was too scared to talk to police and where the police had failed to engage the child. I stepped in and um, asked to speak to the officer separately and I gave a summary of concerns that were raised because I felt it was too serious to let the matter go past without even getting that, that basic overview of what had happened. Um, so, uh, yeah, the social worker made it clear. She said um, both the police and the local authority are not even considering whether or not the abuse has happened. They stated that it had been decided that I was to blame. Either I was delusional and had some um, uh, yeah, delusional belief about children being abused, or I fabricated it. Either way, I presented a risk to um, the children in my family. And they, they said there was an inherent risk of emotional harm from me because, because of the disclosures I'd made to police that, that were, uh, at that point, unsub in, well, in, their, in their view, unsubstantiated. This is, this is astonishing that we're still, we're still getting this. But one of the first stories that we ever covered in the column was Holly Gregg, uh, one of the first child abuse stories we ever covered. Holly Gregg's mum uh, separated from father. Holly made disclosures after that. She was very worried that uh, the, the father would kill her pet dogs that she loved very much um, because this is the threat that he'd made to silence her during the abuse. So um, this was reported. But after a while, Holly started to name other abusers. It wasn't just inside the family. There's a big network of abusers, including some quite powerful people, including the then head of forensic CID in Aberdeen and a judge, some social workers and some head teachers. So Holly uh, was very specific about this and her mother reported all of these disclosures to the police. She went down one morning to uh, take the bins out and some very caring professional people jumped on her, um, pulled her pyjama trousers down, stuck a needle in her bottom. And when she next regained consciousness, she was in Cornhill, uh, Royal Cornhill Mental Hospital in Aberdeen. She had been sectioned because the response was, you're clearly delusional and you're a threat to your own child. She managed to fight that off, but we've seen the same so frequently for people who report Satanist ritual abuse. Um, so frequent is the removal of their children and often the handing over of the children to the alleged abuser that the charities dealing with this now advise them not to report the, the, the wrongdoing to the police, but simply to flee to a safe place. Um, and in Lambeth, after the EXO report, in the Metropolitan Police in the heart, the capital of our country, um, it's still happening. It's, it's, it's astonishing. Um, so we're almost up to date. You, you said that that's us up to May this year. Um, it, it, before we round things off, is, is there anything else that's happened or, or is, that, is that where things currently sit that there's, well, sorry, I beg your pardon. Firstly, 
what's what's the perpetrator doing? Is he being removed from post? Is he still in post? Is he still got access to children? What's the council doing with their risk that they must be aware of? I mean, they can't fail to be aware of this. What are the council doing about that ongoing risk? So um, this this went on um, for several months. So from being told by the social worker that um, we're not considering whether or not this has happened, we believe the blame lines with you. I then had months of um, this case being dealt with at child protection. So that child protection action was in relation to me. There was no evidence that I met the threshold for child protection. Um, the argument was based on prejudiced views that have been formed based on the false information on my files. So the report was written based on that false information. Um, the social worker also raised the fact that in the past, I'd um, on two occasions raised other safeguarding concerns and the police took no action. I was able to evidence that although the police initially took no action in relation to concerns I raised in the past, in both cases it was true. I had once raised concerns about grooming behaviours from a sports coach and um, at a later stage full disclosures were made by other people. I'd also raised concerns about domestic violence, uh, a woman that I knew that was experiencing domestic violence. I said to the police, I'm really concerned um, there's a homicide risk um, and that, that, you know, the perpetrator could go too far. He did actually kill her, sadly, and um, in the IOPC report in relation to it, they identified that a third party had raised concerns that weren't acted on. So rather than those two previous occasions of raise, raising safeguarding concerns being an indicator of unreliability, they're actually showing I'm a reliable witness. Um, so it was concerning how this even come about. It was concerning that despite there being no evidence, it was pushed through at child protection level. Weeks went by, social workers would show up at our house randomly. There was never anything to see. I mean, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm very well aware it could have been far worse. Um, like, as you say, looking at other cases where really extreme action, like, uh, people being sectioned, children being removed, it was never that, but it was this odd dynamic. Social workers would show up to my house, see my child, very happy. <laughs> they would um, chat about how's your day being at school. Um, Particularly at the outset, um, my child found it very distressing, the social workers arriving. Um, my child felt that the social workers were almost trying to trick trick them into saying something negative about me. Likewise, they're throwing up my family members, trying to um, find something negative. We didn't find anything negative, but they still kept going. Um, this went on for um, almost 12 months in total. Um, eventually, it got to the point where... Um, you know, uh, with the child protection meetings, other professionals have to attend. But with as the moments went by, uh, people seemed to recognise that actually the information that was presented at the outset wasn't accurate. And there's, there's nothing here, you know, normally for child protection, that would be the last resort for a family that has lots and lots of issues, um, lots of concerns. But here they're like, there's, there's no issue here. She's raised a concern and police have found no evidence. But, but surely that can't be sole grounds for child protection um, involvement because also it sets a worrying precedent that if someone reports a crime in general you know you it can't be applied so so widely but it was concerning because right up to um, December 2022 um, children's services were still saying that unless the perpetrator is charged then we will have a view that this is fabricated and you you present a risk so it was terrifying they're 12 months Legally, I knew that this wasn't correct and that the social workers were really picking and choosing legislation as they fit, felt fit. And, and arguably, I guess um, it's, it's unusual in the context of child protection for, for the person who's the focus of it to have a really, a really strong knowledge of child protection policies and legislation. But despite the fact I would say, you know, this, this isn't admissible, this isn't acceptable, um, policy and legislation has been broken extensively it was still continued but effectively in the end I was able to get um, some legal support and others advocating on my behalf and children's services closed the case for me um, but, but the perpetrator remains in the setting um, so I, I'm not sure I've, it was never made clear to me if um, if any safeguards were put in place if he was ever removed from the setting at any point 
Um, it's, it's unclear. Um, during those 12 months, um, there, was, there was minimal attempts to engage with a child. Um, I was told that they would have further opportunities to make a disclosure. Um, but it was very, it was, um, it was quite ambiguous. You know, they would say, oh, well, the child has had opportunities to talk. A social worker has been to visit them. The police have seen them at school. I said, yes, this has happened. But have, have they, has that been a supportive dynamic? Have they truly recognized the trauma they've been through? In the end, um, after many months, the child was able to get ISBA support. Um, so that's an independent sexual violence advocate. Um, and eventually they um, were able to really kind of build up that trust. And it was almost exactly a year to the day that they first attended the police station that an ABE interview was finally carried out. So what, what should have happened really almost you know, very, very soon after, it did actually happen um, 12 months later. I, I was optimistic when I found this out, I felt, but okay, like, you know, better, better late than ever. Um, finally, actions could be taken in re- relation to the perpetrator. Um, children in the setting are going to be safeguarded. But it, it didn't. Um, for reasons that are unclear and reasons that seem quite illogical, quite soon after the AB interview, the case was closed again. When I spoke to a senior officer, the generalised comments he made were about the way the child presented. Um, and I said, well, really, that's an indicator that this child really has experienced extensive trauma. You know, this is evidence in itself. It didn't, it didn't make sense. Um, there are reasons for discontinuing. And again, as, as with um, the social work processes I experienced, the, um, the process leading up to the AB interview, the fact that the child had been extend- um, extensively questioned prior to obtaining a statement, you know, that, that, isn't, um, that isn't policing best practice. And I'd had experience uh, supporting vulnerable witnesses through police processes previously. So there's a lot of um, concerning practice. But... Um, um, as far as I'm aware, n- nothing's been put in place. Lambeth Lado said there's um, no evidence. Um, the setting itself is affiliated with the Church of England. I went through all the Church of England safeguarding, um, as many contacts as I get hold of. No- nothing particularly happened. Um, the perpetrator is still there, surrounded by vulnerable children. And um, yeah, no actions have been taken. And and also as well, but there's false information on my police records, there's false information on um, children's service records in relation to me. It's still there, you know, it's still there. And um, this is this is approaching the two-year point now. Um, we're, we're still in the same place. And I, I feel that that's the reason I'm speaking out now because um, I feel like I've knocked on every door. I've kind of behind the scenes been trying to do everything I can to safeguard children in this setting. Um, because ultimately, you know, abuse of children in Lambeth has gone on for far too long. Um, you know, something needs to happen. There's this horrific legacy of abuse of children in Lambeth, um, particularly um, children from poorer ba- backgrounds, children experiencing economic hardship, children um, with additional vulnerabilities, children um, from ethnic minority backgrounds. But this pattern keeps continuing, and in, in Lambeth, it, uh, um, continues to be an issue. The Shirley Oaks Survivors Association described the abuse as happening on an industrial scale. And it seems from what you've described there, the abuse is still happening, it's still going on. Lambeth Council have learned nothing. Uh, but it's simply moved from an industrial scale to a more distributed nature but nothing else really seems to have changed. And that's, that's shocking and sad. And uh, our hearts go out to all the children of Lambeth who will be affected. Um, I feel, uh, Emma, I should give you the last word uh, here as to how you view things, having been through this, having been subject to wrongful child protection, um, procedures in uh, response to making uh, an appropriate, prudent disclosure of the abuse of a child, um, having been ignored, having been slandered, having had your police records falsified so that you are 
not going to be believed. Um, as you look back on this, at this point in late 2023, uh, would you like to uh, leave us with your closing thoughts? I think the whole landscape of safeguarding needs to improve. The last two years, while this case has been going on, there's been so many reports about um, changing changing um, processes in policing, changing processes in, in safeguarding. But on the ground, this, this isn't happening. Uh, the UK column once featured um, social worker Carol Woods that experienced um, something that's not dissimilar in terms of falsifying of records to, um, to silence her. I think the issue of whistleblowing in social work needs to be really robustly addressed. Social work is all about safeguarding, and so safeguarding processes should be as strong as possible. But, but sadly, that, that's not there within local authorities, within social work. There can be that culture of, of silence, and it's something well documented in, in research around social work. Um, whistleblowing often doesn't happen enough, and if it does happen, it's, it's not dealt with um, robustly enough. The organisations involved with this case, Lambeth Council, the Metropolitan Police, also BCP Council, and um, to an extent, the Church of England, they really need to step forward. There needs to be candor. There needs to be that acceptance that safeguarding hasn't been taken seriously enough. Children have not been protected well enough. And this this is a time now, really, to step forward and, and to take action. Lambeth's got a long history, as identified in the IICSA report. What's concerning is in that report, they described this, this, um, these protective rings being formed around certain individuals. And there are many survivors in the community saying this hasn't gone far enough. There are survivors in the community that still haven't been compensated um, for the abuse they experienced. Lambeth Council really needs to address all the historic issues present also recognise there are issues um, that are still going on. The report identifies a case from 2016, a girl who was uh, abused within Lambeth, then moved to Sheffield. Both Lambeth and Sheffield failed to hold a statutory meeting, failed to put any safeguards in place and failed to act on the concerns. You know, that's, that's very recent. And again, this is a case that moves from Lambeth to another area and the area the child moved to still failed to act. The, the reason that the social workers investigated me said so there's unanswered questions, therefore we need to investigate you. I agree, there, there are really profound unanswered questions, but they don't relate to me. They relate to safeguarding from the Metropolitan Police, from Lambeth Council. Um, you know, I'm not alone in raising these issues. This, um, there's been reports, there's been um, people speaking on the streets. There's been protests on the streets of Lambeth within this time about the fact that child safeguarding is taken seriously enough. I'm hoping by speaking today that that will change and that, that proper safeguards will now be put in place. Emma, thank you very much for that. I hope you're right. We're seeing um, child safeguarding and social work practice um, simultaneously criminalising the ordinary, not normal events of family life when... Um, uh, when they wished, when they wished to, and uh, ignoring the most grievous and heinous crimes against children. And it certainly does need to change. Emma, thank you very much for speaking out. We'll close there. Thank you. <laughs>